0: Hello and welcome to the Resilience Research Group's monthly seminar series. Each week we will be joined by a panel of researchers, organisations, health and social care workers and the public to discuss one topic related to resilience. On this week's podcast we will be discussing an introduction to resilience. Uh, In today's podcast our intention is to build on our previous podcast where we discussed what resilience is. To go into a little bit more detail about uh, what visiting is, is and is not, how it relates to different theories, and how it relates to, to your work. Could this week's panel please introduce themselves to our audience?
1: I'm Jay Mancini. I'm currently retired, but was on the human development and the family science faculties of both Virginia Tech University and the University of Georgia.
2: Hi everyone. My name is Sabina Kleitman. I'm Associate Professor at the School of Psychology, University of Sydney.
3: Hi everyone. My name is Dr. Heather Prime. I'm at York University in Toronto, Canada. I generally study child and family well-being and resilience um, within families and and children experiencing adversity. And I'm currently looking at that within the COVID context as well. Hi, I'm uh,
4: Dr. Yolien van Breyn. I'm a postdoc at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and my research is on resilience in the context of prejudice and discrimination.
5: Hi,
0: Kenneth Pakenham, Emeritus Professor, School of Psychology, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Uh, my interest is
6: in uh, resilience training interventions.
5: Hi, I'm Kristen Krauss. I'm the Deputy Director at the Centre for Health Identity, Behavior and Prevention Studies at the Rutgers School of Public Health in New Jersey. I'm Mark Zimmerman.
6: I'm a uh, professor in the School of Public Health and Psychology at the University of Michigan. I study mostly uh, uh, in the context of adolescent development.
7: Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Rebecca Graber, and I am a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Brighton in the UK. And I'm specifically interested in how supportive relationships can promote resilience, specifically, um, especially with children and young people.
8: Um, My name's Alan, an advisor for Frontier Resilience. It's my own business. Um, I've spent 20 years working in crisis management, um, helping organizations basically overcome adversity and um, challenge, and more recently have switched some of my energies and thoughts towards how that can help people in a more personal sense um, around overcoming adversity.
0: Hi, I'm Dr Jennifer McGowan. I'm a lecturer at UCL and founder of the Resilience Research Group. My research is on resilience in relation to health psychology. So again, thank you so much everyone for being here. It's really great to see you all. In our last podcast, uh, we talked about what resilience is uh, and how that definition changes depending on the field that people are in. What we'd like to do today is start by going into that in a little bit more detail. So rather than uh, defining resilience, what we'd like to talk about is what is resilience in terms of like what factors are related to resilience? And I know this is quite a broad question and we'd like to hear it from everyone as different viewpoints and fields. For example, in my field, then uh, resilience can be said to include things like uh, coping mechanisms, like self-esteem, optimism, emotional stability, social support, uh, secure attachment, experience of adversity. These are all things uh, that all come together, both internal and external factors, to create what we call resilience.
2: We typically look at resilience together with adaptability and we look at adaptability as the ability to successfully adjust to the changing nature of the environment, challenging nature to the environment. And I find it's very difficult to separate uh, the traditional measures of of resilience with the measures of adaptability. They always converge to the broader factor. And if I don't put them together in one uh, sort of composite I face multicollinearity issues every single time. And I've been wondering whether other people experience sort of similar issues.
0: That's a really good question. Thank you for the podcast. Could I ask you, how do you define adaptability?
2: Uh, I can actually read it from the screen if you'd like. I just got one of the papers in front of me. Adaptability can be defined as the ability to successfully adjust in response to changes in the environment um pretty much as it is and they look at it in the academic context and now they looked at it in the context of the um covet and in both contexts adaptability and resilience converge together very difficult to separate them
0: they sound like quite similar definitions to what we uh, talked about in our last mm. podcast i think two things one is
7: that um Instead of saying factor, I'd actually use the term mechanism, along with some other researchers in the field and thinking about what contributes to resilience, uh, which maybe be sounds like a bit of a nitpicky thing. But um, the idea would be that these are all components that are part of a wider process and unfold over time and interact with other mechanisms. Um, they're not being a simple recipe for resilience. Um, so so. With that in mind, I would think that some of the things that, um, in my area of research, looking at children and young people and who are, who are facing really broad um, forms of risk from socioeconomic adversity or their identity and to, uh, their identity being one that's threatened in various ways or cultures of substance misuse, we see there are a lot of social um, mechanisms for resilience, so social support, as you mentioned. Um, the ability to cope, but not just cope as an individual, but to cope within their relationships and through relationships that encourage good coping behaviors, Um, having stability and access to some key resources. So it not just being about how well they themselves can respond to what's out there, but what do they actually have available to them in terms of stable housing, access to food, security, Um, Is the school culture welcoming to them? Is there good education? Having good parental and caregiver support or monitoring? Um, Having a secure attachment with somebody, ideally a a parent or family member, but not necessarily. And so thinking about those in in terms of um, lots of different mechanisms that interact. And then I think when you delve into the specific risks that individuals face, there's going to be mechanisms that come up that are really relevant to those those challenges.
3: Yeah, I really agree, Rebecca. You know, just what's standing out is the dynamic nature of resilience um, and the interconnected nature of it. Um, When I'm thinking about children and families, I'm thinking about, you know, the resources that they're coming with prior to a, a life challenge and, um, you know, those sorts of um, building blocks that are, uh, that are built within families in terms of the strength of relationships within a family um, and other, other factors, but then also what comes up during the um, challenging time and how, how families can um, join together to, to learn and grow from adverse experiences. Um, and thinking about factors, I really like how you talked about thinking about mechanisms rather than factors. I, I feel similarly about that. And um, you know, even just thinking about some of the factors that we look at, they're so interdependent on one another that it's hard to tease them apart. So I would be thinking about, you know, thinking about maybe predispositions that that we as humans come into the world with maybe some of us are more reactive um, physiologically or emotionally reactive to stressors Um, that can be a risk for for a child. And yet, um, when, when within nurturing environment and also an environment that um, supports emotional expression and helps the child learn to leverage their emotions and trust their emotions and regulate their emotions, that then can become a, 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 a resilience factor when they experience a challenge so then they're actually then able to cope um better than you know had they been in an environment that didn't help them to leverage their emotions so i think um yeah and to Sabina's point it's just so hard to tease a part of these processes out i'm really interested in measurement as well and and how we can actually study some of these mechanisms
2: just to clarify when you talk about the When I talk about factors, I talk, I use the term purely in psychometric sense. Um, That does not, it's not mutually exclusive to the word processes or to mechanisms. I'm just talking in terms of a, it's just a terminology which is used in a particular analytic techniques, data analytic techniques. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, when I when I'm using the term factor, I'm thinking more. You know, um, I don't want to say variables because that that implies measurement as well. But um, considerations, things that might contribute to. Um, rather, I'm not thinking of it in terms of a measurement um, approach.
6: Yeah, <clears throat> I actually don't think about it as factor. I thought exactly what you meant was a factor in the psychometric sense. To to me that. Um, kind of uh, relates to this idea that it's a trait and I don't, I don't believe it, it's a trait. And uh, I think I watched the first discussion, uh, Jennifer, and I think there was a general agreement that um, of not thinking about resilience as a trait uh, for several reasons, um, one of which is if it's developmental, that means it can change and traits are typically not changeable. But uh, the way we've thought about this, and when I think about mechanism, I think about how do risks and promotive factors sort of interact or connect to each other to help people uh, overcome sort of adversity that they're faced with. So we have written about um, promotive factors being of two types. One is uh, resources, which are external to the kid. I study kids, so external to the person. So it would be social support, it may be opportunity structures, it might be um, healthcare access, whatever that would be, depending on the person in the context. Uh, and then the secondly are the assets, uh, and those are within the person. So those are the things I think Heather was talking about, kinds of things like maybe a disposition to be exploratory or um, you know, it could be some traits, could be intelligence, could be, and, and, and in that case, Sabina, I would think about adaptability as being a, uh, a promotive asset for a kid, the more adaptable they are, the more resilient they could be from that. So I think about mechanism, I, I study the, or I, we study this in, in terms of how sort of variables interact. And then lastly, I would say that we've also looked at cumulative risk and cumulative um, promotive factors. So we look across the ecological spectrum So we look at individual assets like kids, uh, aspects about the kid, intelligence, adaptability. Then we look at family factors, uh, loving family, uh, parental support. Then we might look at community factors like community programs and that sort of thing. Um, I was just gonna say, uh, I completely
8: agree with what Mark was saying there about the the thing of resilience not being a trait. I think often when I have discussions with people, people talk about it almost as a trait it's not something you can develop and I very much believe that it is something you can develop you have to work on it like any other skill um and a lot of those things that people have already talked about but making sure that you've got that societal framework you've got that collaboration with other people to be resilient because I I don't think it's necessarily something you can necessarily achieve on your own um and being able to to reason with the situation that you're you're looking at, um, and be able to step back from that. I, I, again, I'm kind of coming to this from from the crisis management side. Um, resilience in the face of crisis is about good leaders being able to step back and look at a situation objectively, and not react but respond to that situation. And to do so, that requires requires reasoning um, it requires to look at a situation objectively um, with some composure.
1: Yes thanks. this fascinating fascinating uh, discussion. Um, I think also also in the mix of this is the sense that individuals and families make of the adversity that, that they're facing. Um, you know, in the literature, other people have written about kind of levels of stress from stuff very manageable to toxic stress. And it seems to me that to understand what, what in fact is resilience as a process, and at the end of the day, where is an individual or, or, or a family as they've wrestled well, we hope, with resilience, uh, accounting for the nature of the adversity se- seems to have, I think, a major effect on what happens. what happens next. So I just wanna introduce that into this particular discussion.
0: Thanks. And the toxic stress uh, approach as well is something I definitely want to come back to later on in the podcast and and talk a bit more about. So thank you for that. I'd like to uh, go into a bit more detail on the things that that Mark and Alan and and everyone else was saying here in terms of uh, resilience as a state or a trait. And I know this is something that's often conflicting in the literature. So uh, for the sake of anyone listening who, who doesn't know what the difference between state or trait is, A state is is a temporary way of being. It's something that you have at some points in time and not at others, but a trait tends to be a more stable or enduring characteristic. So resilience uh, could be considered a trait in that it's something that when people have it, they can often apply it across different situations. But as we mentioned in the last podcast, they can't always apply it across all situations. So would you consider resilience to be more of a state or a trait?
6: Um, I would say it's more, um, neither. I mean, is there some, some interstitial thing in between, as I was saying, I think it's a mechanism. I think it's sort of a, a transactional and not transactional in the, the way we've heard about transaction on our former, whatever, I won't go there, but, um, you know, transactional in the sense of, um, it really is about person environment interaction and that social environment, physical environment and all that sort of thing. So I don't think it's necessarily a state-based and the examples I like to give is what's resilient for let's say a, a teenager is really different than what's um, resilient for, uh, you know, an older American. Uh, you know, me being resilient would be, you know, um, resilient from chronic disease management or something whereas a, a teenager of course can have chronic disease but for a, a teenager it might be resilient from being bullied or um, resilient from uh, growing up in a um, in a resource poor school or environment and for older people it, it might be different and resilient from you know healing from the fall for example so so I, I just think it's more transactional than either a state or a trade. So I wouldn't necessarily frame it that way. And the way I think about traits, I said before, is more might be an asset. Um, uh, how people respond to a situation might be an asset,
5: but uh, I, I don't I don't think about that way. I I like Mark's way of thinking about this because I haven't actually really pondered it that way before. I mean, conversations that we've had in our team have argued that it's, it could be both, uh, a, almost like a, a process and a trait. And similarly, I've been wrestling it with as an, as an outcome. So, you know, I kind of do some see that similarly to what Mark is saying, but, you know, one of the things that has kind of woven its way throughout my work over the last few years is really thinking about it, something almost as a muscle that at sometimes you have to flex it um, in certain situations and you have to work it out in certain situations, and if you don't, and it kind of gets weaker, then you have to figure out how to to adapt it. And I and I again kind of see this back to Mark's point, where you may not need it, you may not need to be resilient in certain situations, or kind of carry it forward, especially in community settings. But um, you know, when you need it to, it's almost you know muscle memory, where if you if you've done it before and you've overcome things before, that you can at least tune into to those qualities, into, into that process that you've done before and, and apply it to other situations or other health conditions or other um, scenario throughout the lifespan.
2: I really agree with what Mark and what Kristen you're saying. I also, I look at it at resilience from all three perspectives, as a state, as a trait, as an outcome, as a process. We actually written a paper about it, saying that we think it's all over the above and um, we looked, the, now the factor which emerges, emerges for us from all the different combinations, we call it the uh, uh, resilience resources factor. And it's a combination of many different resources. And as Mark was saying, intellectual resources, some, some, something from personality. But what we discovered during the COVID fascinated me because we discovered the uh, people's metacognitive awareness of how their resilience grew through the experience of pandemic. And that was an outcome. That was an outcome of going through this experience. And what we saw, and that's the paper which we hope to submit very soon. What we saw is that that um, fa- new, for us it was a new, I've never read anything about metacognitive experience of metacognitive growth, of oh, oh, sorry, resilience growth. And, uh, but that factor was predictive of mental well-being. And we did, uh, we originally discovered, uh, looked at it on a sample size of about 500 Australians. And then we replicated it on another sample of 2,000 Australians, of about 2,000 Australians, a separate sample. So it wasn't a fluke. And um, this is certainly evidence that there is a resilience-related outcome, is what Chris uh, called the muscle. And for some people, that muscle was stronger compared to the other uh, people. And that flexing of that muscle was very good for people's mental well-being.
3: Uh yeah I really like I was just thinking about the analogy of the muscle this morning as I was kind of thinking about the podcast and I really um like that idea too in terms of needing to build the muscle um and which kind of relates to the idea that Sabina is discussing as well around need you know the experience of adversity supporting the development of resilience. So the importance of, you know, people are not born resilient um, and going through challenges, including suffering is part of building resilience. And um, I think that, you know, it kind of, uh, I sometimes take some issue um, around the idea of kind of bouncing back because it involves this kind of automatic, Reaction to stress or suffering or stress or adversity. And I think that um, it lacks that nuance of this process, which, um, you know, I don't it, kind of linking to your question around state versus trait. I think you can be a, in a state of suffering or despair or, you know, at the worst part of your journey through grief or loss. And that's still part of the process of resilience, of building resilience. So um, I, I, I think it's really hard to take a snapshot of resilience because it is such a dynamic process um, both within one single adversity but also as you experience more and, and it, it becomes a cumulative experience.
7: Things that's all so interesting and yeah I think there's a real tension between there being elements of resilience that are trait oriented and state oriented and methodologically we often have to stop and take a snapshot in a moment in time and sometimes that snapshot is going to be very very accurate very valid um, and sometimes it's really just an imperfect striving to capture something that's happening. And, you know, in terms of statistical techniques, there's so much that, you know, the last even 10, 20 years is moving forward with that. So perhaps that will be something that, that changes. Um, but yes, it's a process and it's something that you can look at in a moment in time and think, okay, whether globally, or specifically with respect to a particular challenge, there's some sense of that resilience process being really helpful for this person right now and them feeling like they're navigating it. Um, But as Heather said, that may not feel very good at the time and yet it can be part of that process. Um, And equally, I find a lot of trouble with that idea of bouncing back because I think that also really does a disservice to Um, all of us going through difficult times that you, the idea of resilience is is one of building. And so why would you go back to whatever there was before, even if there are aspects of that, that you dearly wish you could return to. Um, It is a cumulative growth and movement through time. And that's very, very powerful. and, and something to, you know, kind of bounce forward, move forward into, probably bouncing is optimistic, <laughs> um, but moving forward. And I'd also say that um, as it's something that is a process, it's also something that is always under construction and on always subject to the way that we think about what it means to do well at any time. And we can have a lot of agreement on that, or it might be that that's really contested and maybe even that that's subject to us trying to to put labels of uh, well-being on things that that perhaps aren't. So, for example, the, um, you know, saying about emotional reactivity, it's clear that um, within society and, and even in different countries, different cultures, there's different ideas about what emotional reactivity is appropriate to express, what emotions would be appropriate to feel at a given time. And that can also be reflective of some of the adversities that people are facing. um, That maybe anger is not seen to be an appropriate emotion, even though that can be a very resilience promoting emotion for people. Um, So lots of questions, I think.
1: This business of bouncing back is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I wrote a paper once where in, in, in paragraph A, I argued for resilience being a return to um, at least the level of where one was before the adversity, or even advancing beyond that. And in the second paragraph, I argued against everything I had said in, in the first paragraph. So I decided to resolve it by saying it's an open question, which is, you know, that's, that's an easy way out. What I think is striking is that years ago, I, I, uh, I, I did this little search through, through some Google mechanism, and I discovered that that resilience really first appeared in materials, uh, textile science, and in engineering, which is kind of interesting. And if you looked at book titles years ago in the social behavioral sciences and asked the question, how often does resilience appear in a title? Almost never. If you look at uh, textile science and engineering, resilience appeared all over the place in terms of titles. As, as you get more recently, you see that social and behavioral science has skyrocketed in the use of, of the term in all kinds of books, papers and all. So I think that kind of taking the historical look could be instructive on what are the current, current pitfalls? One pitfall might be, you can't, you can't describe resilience as being everything, I don't think. Uh, yet if you look at the literature, that's how it appears. To me, everything can be resilience, and that suggests we ought to define it at a very different um, level. Um, whatever, whatever that may, whatever that may be, um, to me, resilience is: ha- have I wrestled well with whatever's whatever's going on, or has the family wrestled well? And I kind of, and, and that I think varies for for by individual and by. by family because that's the nature of 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 a process
8: uh yeah i mean i I love the the metaphor of the the muscle and resilience being a muscle that you can you can develop and so i'm stuck between this this state and trait thing because i liken it to um if you're building those muscles um in your body if you're building the muscles in your legs you're able to take on a marathon doesn't mean you're you're a good weightlifter um, because that requires muscles elsewhere. So there's an element of state to it depending on the situation you're faced with and the challenge you're faced with. Um, but the general all-round kind of development of those, those resilience muscles mean that you are kind of semi able to deal with this, a, a situation when it arises. So so that's... Uh, I can use the metaphor that, that development of the muscles in your legs is going to enable you to maybe help in do some weightlifting. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to make you perfect at being able to face that situation.
0: And uh, I, I'd like to, uh, to, to build on that a little bit more. So we've moved away from is it a state or a trait to uh, is it an outcome or a process? And uh, I think it sounds like what we're saying is, it's definitely a process. It might also be an outcome. It might be something people are aiming towards. Um, I feel in a way, uh, why not both? I mean, how many, especially when you're coming to, to mental, emotional or, or social factors do occur in a vacuum? They, they continue, you know, you might build resilience in relation to something else. Then you might have resilience ready for something, for the next problem. But then you might lose resilience after that problem if something else happens that you can't cope with. I think it's something that we we aim for as an outcome and then use as a process as we learn further on. And I just wanted to get uh, other people's opinions on that too.
7: Yeah, at the uh, risk of bringing in old physics uh, learning from way back when, another um, analogy is like kinetic energy and potential energy that if we think about resilience as the process, the the thing that's actually moving at the time, the kinetic movement, um, that's really helpful, I think, for trying to understand how to potentially how to build resilience and support resilience. And then also thinking about this as a potential that um, like a muscle can be in use or it can be ready waiting to be used. um, That resilience at a moment in time is how you're, uh, you know, how you're uh, responding to the adversities around you, or your family is responding to adversities, et cetera. Um, and also, are you, are you ready, like, kind of for the next bit potentially? Um, and again, that moves well beyond the individual, I think, for you know, it's, it's their potentialities and assets within, but also the, um, as Mark said earlier, the opportunities and all the structural asset, aspects and resources that they'd have available if that were to happen. And one of the things that, um, if you do go through a hard time, challenging time, is that you're building that muscle within yourself, but also within your social networks or um, gaining medical support or all of these other things that are coming in as well that um, can potentially leave you better able to respond to a challenge next time it arises, whether that's tomorrow or in a year from now.
0: Thank you. And I think something keeps coming up here is that it does it does depend on, on what's happening to you at any point in time and also what support you have at any point in time from your social group, from your environment, uh, from your, your government, even in terms of, as you say, mental or physical health care. So we are really uh, getting to the idea that resilience is not just something that you have internally, but something that you use in different situations and maybe more or less useful, perhaps based on uh, whether you have experience of that situation before and what support you have at that point in time.
8: I just wanted to, to jump in and say uh, one of the things that I sometimes talk to people about is, is about a sort of resilience culture as well. And, and this has come up. Um, in various discussions through COVID because people who have considered themselves quite resilient um, have gone through COVID and faced um, challenge after challenge after challenge and actually that's diminished their ability to be resilient. Yes, they are and they've been able to practice that, that muscle, that skill to be resilient but over time um, they, there is a need, I feel, that you have to recharge that. Um, it can't just keep being pushed at um, because otherwise it breaks.
0: Definitely. Thank you. And I think that's a a really great point to move on to something that Jay said earlier that I said we come back to which is um, the idea of how resilience relates to stress and essentially whether there is a, a tipping point or is there a point where resilience can break down instead of build up. So some of the stress models that resilience has been related to is for example um, the toxic stress model, the idea that if you experience a lot of stress over a long period of time without a break then your body essentially starts to break down both both physically and mentally and and that lack of of pause where you can collect yourself and build resilience means that instead you you decline uh, physically and mentally and therefore resilience uh, cannot develop.
6: Um, I'm a little. I'm a little aware of the toxic stress model. I, I had a doctoral student actually did a dissertation on that very topic a few years ago. The way I look at it, you know, and I remember um, in some of the work that I've done, I've been criticized in the literature, um, sometimes directly, not sometimes not so directly, that um, you know, if a kid has too much toxic stress, too much stress that, you know, the hole is too deep. There's no ladder, there's no way to get them out. It's just, and there was, it was empirically shown to be the case that, and, and um, this was uh, Arnold, um, uh, what's, uh, Samroff, who's a friend and a colleague. So, you know, it wasn't really, yeah, I didn't take it personally, but, you know, so, but then he, when I when I read it, it was like he took all of these sort of this toxic stress multiple cumulative factors and then he looked at like parental support one thing against you know an army of 12 and I'm like that's not fair so let's do cumulative promotive factors across ecological levels like I mentioned before and let's see if we have if we stack them up against each other that way now it's a fair fight so to speak and um, what we consistently have found in several papers is that Cumulative positive factors can counteract cumulative negative factors. Now, that doesn't mean to say, you know, um, some people get beat down so far that it is hard to come back and they don't. But it, it, it's just a long way of saying that, um, I, I think, yes, toxic stress, there, there certainly could be breaking points. And that, that example of the, of the physical sciences, I think I, I looked up through the years ago and it actually comes from physical science, and it's how how much a material can take a pressure before it actually literally breaks. Like glass is very brittle and does not have any resilience give. Whereas uh, her, um, earthquake buildings now, like in Chile and other places where there's lots of earthquakes, you know, they sway. They they, they don't they don't crack in the in the sway. And so anyway, it, the way I think about it is, yes there's no question one thing could put us all in a situation where it's really hard to bounce back. Um, But when we look at toxic stress, I think we have to look at, I don't know what it'd be, promotive strength, Um, you know, how many supports do you have? How many people are reaching down to help that kid pull out of that hole that they've been dug into, so to speak. And so uh, I think we have to think about, if we think about toxic stress, we Have to think about other other factors as well uh, and multiple. Um, so, I don't know if, what would be the opposite of toxic, toxic stress. Can I just say one other thing? And I saw this couple of hands on. One of the key things for me about resilience um, really comes back when I was reading uh, stuff by Sir Michael Rudder. Um, and I've always been driven in my research and my work and in my view of the world as um, it glass being half full. Not something that doesn't mean I'm an optimist, but the idea of looking for what's positive in people's lives and trying to understand you know, how, how that works. Because we tend to look at risk, we tend to look at bad things and we tend to try to fix them. And that's clinical medicine. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. We need somebody to fix a broken leg. We need somebody to, to fix somebody who has really suffering some serious outcomes of like PTSD. So I'm not criticizing it but we don't spend as much time thinking about what are the positive things in kids lives and i like to use the an, an another example of if, if you know there's lots of poverty in a lot of cities and you go into these places and if poverty predicted 100% how you know terrible things might be you wouldn't see positive things there so there obviously is other stuff going on and so i th- i think about resilience as a way of thinking about what's right in people's lives rather than what's wrong in people's lives and then try to use that those rose-colored glasses to kind of think about toxic stress and everything else
4: um yeah I just wanted to sort of agree with um with what's been said just now and I really think that part of the strength of resilience research is exactly in what you've just mentioned is to look to say, okay, yes, when people experience adversity, of course there are detrimental effects. It's just about looking beyond that, and and not to say, oh, when children experience abuse, they suffer from that, okay. But on top, but if you let's say if you dig a bit deeper, or if you really take a more holistic, let's say, view, you can also identify a lot of, let's say, resilience. Uh, yeah, evidence for resilience. You know, so I think the 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 yeah, as I said, one of the contributions of resilience research is also. A sort of, um, the, the, the conceptual idea that there is more beyond the, some specific detrimental outcome, right? Um, so that is, uh, yeah, that's sort of kind of an, uh, aside from the empirical side of, you know, I often feel like it's not um, so, it's, it, it, it's not so relevant to identify which specific behavior constitute resilience in a specific context, but rather to to look at that as a yeah as a as a maybe a, a broader cluster of of um, outcomes or behaviors you know perhaps a child is suffering at school but still has very good I don't know a very supportive friendship group um, so it's not it's not about saying okay this is resilience and this is suffering but rather a yeah an integrated yeah, view I would say.
3: Yeah, I really I'm enjoying this conversation, and um, you know, to Mark's point, I you know I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, so I come from a long line of training of kind of deficits and disorders, and I feel optimistic about this conversation. And just as I get more uh, involved in resilience research, so with that perspective, I come you know I, you know I I've seen in um, research around cumulative risk and how we see these risks do often cluster together. Um, and that there's kind of this um, once you have one, two risks, you're more likely to have more and so on. And then that clustering of risks puts you, you know, tips the scales this one way. So I I love this idea of a cumulative positive experience. And I'm just curious, this is a question uh, to Mark, but or or anyone who might have the answer is, is there, what does that look like? Do we know about um, how positive, experiences or factors operate within a cumulative risk. So in, in high risk um, populations and vulnerable populations, impoverished p- populations, where we know they're experiencing a lot of risk, how common is it to, is, to have multiple um, positive factors as well? Um, and because I do think there's probably a dearth of information about that, I ha- granted I haven't looked for it, But i'm really curious about that because i think it is a really different way of looking at things and i like this kind of you know army of 12 versus army of one that's how i've read the literature too and and is it for lack of measurement and looking for it or you know what does that look like um i'm just curious
6: so
0: marcus you were called by name do you have an answer to that
6: (laughs) because i was called out um Yeah, I mean, we have a few papers, uh, several papers. Actually, the very first paper where we did the cumulative risk, I happened to be working with a European who was here um, doing a postdoc, a Polish man. um, And uh, Krzysztof is his first name, but if I say his last name, I'll just butcher it. But I'm happy to send you some papers to kind of give an example of how we thought about it, looked at it, you know, and I work in Flint, Michigan, mostly. Uh, some of that research is coming from out of Flint, Michigan, and Flint is uh, one of those classic examples. Well, Heather, you know about Flint because we're in the same part of the world, right? I mean, we we have the same First Nation people and the same invasion of all of, of white people and stuff, but I mean, because we're just across the river from one another. But the bottom line is. Um, The kids there have been exposed to lead before the water crisis. Um, There's, it's one of the most violent places in the country in terms of per capita. So there's a lot, and there's lots of poverty. There's lots of racism. There's lots of a long history of all that sort of thing. And some of the kids, you know, I mean, you know, they don't. Some people have criticized my work and and me, and I'm sure all of you who've done this work have heard this before. As I. well, you know, how do you know when you, you know, they define it? So psychologists love, you know, defining it. The other thing that often is um, criticized is like, well, you know, what's success? And for me, the bar of success is very low. The bar for success is not going to prison, not you know, is getting a job. It's it's just it's just working in the shoe store. It's paying taxes and you know, buying a small house and having a family. And it's it's not like being, you know, the CEO of a company or a president of the United States or you know, uh, ambassador to Denmark. You know, it's success is just you know surviving and, and having a somewhat happy life and you know, and and supportive people around you. So, you know, it's a low bar. Um, but you know those those are, those matter in a society and and let's face it most people are resilient i mean let's you know if if they weren't the, the world would be even more chaotic than it is so i just thank add, you i'm, I'm going to jump
3: in because i that i was asking of, cur- out of curiosity and optimism so i don't hope you don't feel called out i i'd love to read the papers so <laughs> thank you
1: I'm gonna talk about what somebody said probably 10 minutes ago and I apologize in, in advance. It's their fault for having said it. So what, what folks are pointing out is, is that in, in a lot of disciplines and, and what I study, military members and families, there's been a preponderance of focus on what's bad, what's wrong, what the problems are, what the deficits are. And Mark spoke to that and others have spoken to, to that. Um, what we've been trying to do in, in studies of military members and families is in fact, look at what, uh, the, the intersection of vulnerability on the one hand and resilience on, on the other hand. And that's that whole notion of saying, at the same time the glass is half empty, it's also half full. Uh, and so in, in the military family literature, we're really trying to shift that, that focus because it's been a dominant uh, deficit focus for a very long time. And, and, it, and it's, it's had uh, very negative implications for military members and families, and their and their well and their well-being. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention ever so briefly is on, and this is way back on on the toxic stress uh, business. Is that uh, toxic stress examples are like intimate partner violence, child abuse, persistent uh, poverty, the, the heavy duty stuff. So re- reflecting on what's, what's the nature of resilience and what does it take to wrestle well with adversity? In terms of toxic stress, you need a different set of tools brought into play. Uh, and, and so, for example, if you look at child abuse or intimate partner violence, you not only need a different kind of social support group for families, but you need the intervention of formal systems, agencies, organizations, clinicians, and and all the rest. And so it, so in trying to connect kind of the early talk with the toxic stress business, um, you know, what's the deal with toxic stress? It is typically the kind of stress that an individual on their own first has little say about. And so as a result is really, really hard pressed on their own, his own, her own, the family's own to really wrestle well with toxic stress. Thanks
7: also just thinking and reformulating as listening to this fascinating conversation. So, um, I, yeah, again, just picking up on a couple of different points. One, again, I, I want to echo what other people said about the fundamental optimism I think there is in this kind of research without dismissing the challenge um, that's within that, but putting it at, as a counter to a deficit model, um, I think, I I just, again, I'm not going to promote my own work, um, but I've just uh, handed in a book chapter looking at resilience interventions uh, with children and young people. And Jennifer kindly shared uh, uh, something to go into that. Um, And I think that we haven't yet as a discipline, reckoned with taking a resilience based approach in the big studies, like the big ones. So um, I've done also a drop in, you know, the kind of study where you take a small mechanism, in my case, it was friendship, and look at how it stacks up against socioeconomic inequality, you know, something really easy, like David and Goliath stuff. And I found a significant mechanism, which again, I think is quite amazing. But um, the The idea that, I think there are a lot of studies that look at risks at different ecological levels and how that plays out at the individual, but looking at protective things at different ecological levels and seeing how that results in different resilience outcomes, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I think a lot of the studies have looked at different individual level protective mechanisms and follow those over time or individual and family, but not even things like individual family and school. So what elements of a school culture or what community policies, what healthcare access policies, what do these play in for individual level outcomes over time? I don't think we're there yet in comparison to what we know about risks. And that's definitely an area for growth. But I also see that in this conversation, there are people who will know much more than me about that. So please do jump in. And I think there's a kind of optimism in that, because I think if you're looking across things at ecological levels, every way that you can identify um, something for change, even in the face of these toxic situations that people don't have much control about, I think you then always identify another way in to potentially uh Support that, whether that's supporting people at the individual level, supporting children or supporting their families, or whether there's something that you can do at a community level, state level, government level. And I think as psychologists, we can take active roles in promoting that and saying that, hey, actually, this thing uh, that doesn't look like it's psychology, it is psychology because it has such an impact on our well being. Um, so that's my rant for. <laughs>
4: I just wanted to sort of follow up on the risk resilience, positive, negative sort of um, issues that we've been talking about. Because I think, I mean, we could even apply that to resilience itself, right? Does resilience as a sort of behavior or outcome or whatever, does that need to be positive? Because a lot of the work talks about, um, someone said something about supportive friend groups, um, any kind of other positive uh, uh, outcome. But I think um, there is also an argument to be made for other types of resilient outcomes that aren't necessarily, let's say, objectively positive, or at least not from the perspective of society or or so. Um, So some of the research I'm doing right now, that's a new project I started, so I I haven't, um, it's not very um, well developed, but um, it's on um, resilience in response to violence. So, child abuse is one branch, and then there's sort of more general violence. Um, Some of my colleagues are working on on homicide and firearm violence. So what does resilience look like in that context? And there is such an observation that um, many children who experience abuse end up, you know, maybe getting, becoming involved in crime. And so the question is, can that count as resilience? I mean, obviously, can that count as resilience? Obviously, that's not a positive response from the perspective of, you know, often it leads to problems, but it can be a form of self-assertion. You know, if you have experienced abuse and you're, you, you've been sort of, uh, yeah, you've had your agency maybe um, taken away or, or violated in some way, that's to reassert yourself um, through some sort of violent crime against someone else. I mean, there is an aspect of of, of yeah maybe coping in there, and uh, that I think um, I, I'm not even uh, trying to say that that should be considered resilience, but more that applying a resilience framework can generate really interesting insights in those into those kinds of behaviors um, as sort of a yeah a um, coping mechanism or or that it meets some sort of need uh, in in the individual.
5: I think it's an interesting perspective, right, that that Julian brings up, because, you know, one of another argument that I'm making and and maybe Mark has seen this too, being in the field of public health is we like to focus a lot on what people do wrong and what people are bad at or what they're struggling with. And to me, incorporating resilience is it seems like a bare minimum of like what can people actually do well how can they respond to things why like especially again within public health it's you know we're always trying to figure out how we can overcome these obstacles and overcome these barriers that people face in terms of healthcare access and but why not focus on on what they can do well and how they are accessing it and is resilience part of that right um and and i you know it's an interesting it's an interesting road that I think you're going down, Jolene, because I think, you know, there could be, in tying it into what Mark said, like, the definition of success can be very broad at that point, like, in relationship to, to, you know, trauma or intimate partner violence is not traumatizing somebody else, but maybe joining a gang or something like that, you know, where's the benchmark then of what is a positive outcome to that. Um, and I think it's an interesting perspective to think about.
0: Thank you, Kristen. And I'm just gonna uh, tie onto that since uh, I work in a, a very similar field to you and uh, tie it back also to Heather's question a little while ago, which is, um, can you be resilient if, if you are experiencing uh, constant trauma and stress? And I think uh, that's one of the great things about resilience is that it's, it's not just something that someone who is, is in good health can manage. It's, something, it's showing that there can be positive outcomes for people um, no matter what they're facing. So you can have uh, extreme constant stress. You can be, for example, extremely disabled or have a serious chronic illness and still manage to be resilient. You can still um, manage to find the good things in your life to build upon, to create your coping mechanisms, to create your social support and have a positive outcome. It might not be the same positive outcome that someone in perfect physical health would be aiming for, but it is still positive. I mean, just having negative things in your life doesn't mean that you cannot be resilient, that you cannot enjoy life. I, I, um, I think that there's such
7: a, I, I'm really excited with more and more research that's coming out that's really exploring the question of what resilience is in a specific context. And I definitely think those issues about, you know, at some point you have to recognize what it is and what it isn't. Um, but as you say, you know, resilience, if you have, or if you're living with a chronic illness means something different to resilience in the context of surviving um, uh, abusive relationships. Um, and I think that as we continue to do that, it is going to, that, that in itself, that question of what is resilience in this context that pushes back about the deficit model because the deficit model kind of assumes that it knows what functioning is, what well-being is, what mental health is, what physical health is. And we know that people are so diverse and so different and that our life contexts are so different. And so I'm really excited by the research that is continuing to come out that is saying, well, I'm not going to take for granted that I know what it is to be resilient in this context. You know, maybe if I'm an insider to that community, I have some insight to that, but let's develop that further and see what it is and then what we can um You know learn about how to facilitate that at different levels i think that's a really nice um, humble thing to do and it continues to push back about that deficit model that serves in some some ways it's very helpful and in other ways it it leaves something to be desired
0: thank you and just for anyone listening who doesn't know what the deficit model is rebecca could you briefly explain that
7: Uh, So, the deficit model would just be assuming that um, health is an absence of disease, for example, um, and that mental health is therefore an absence of mental illness. And it's looking at the way that we function just in terms of the things that are quote unquote wrong with us the distress that we experience, the anxiety we experience, the dysfunctions we might uh, label in ourselves or that other people might label in us. Um, And I'd say that. Those are labels, really, and um, in the kind of historical context of psychology, there's been a you know interest in that, in cataloging that, and that can be very, very useful for people in terms of having a name to put to things that are um, troubling for them or that um, that can affect their lives in various ways. Um, but I think as other people on the on the podcast have said, that it can lead us to overlooks some of the things that we do well and some of the assets and opportunities and supportive relationships that we have in our lives. And so it's perhaps just part of the picture, I think.
1: Yeah, no, Rebecca's quite right. The deficit approach is not really complex. It's, it's the fact that ignoring that while people are, are grappling with bad things in their lives, there's also good elements in their lives that they're accessing and mobilizing. Uh, to deal with those those bad things the problem as researchers is that we've often uh, been really good about about for example studying uh, depression uh, and pretty much limiting studies to depression rather than looking at what are the other pieces in people's lives that in fact may be uh, operating in a very different way for example, uh, self-efficacy which is often a very powerful element in people's lives even as they're they're in the midst of of uh, a large problem that they're that they're facing by themselves or their or their family
0: thank you very much and so i'm going to move on to our, our last question now so uh someone and i'm sorry i can't remember who it was earlier on in the podcast said a resilience can't be everything So there are some things resilience cannot be, and we have covered a lot of things that that resilience are or or that resilience is related to, such as uh, relationships, coping, stability, um, being able to stay objective in situations, uh, self-esteem, social support, environmental support, experience or adversity. We've also talked about some of the things that it's not. So we've said, for example, it's not just coping mechanisms, it's also the things that you have around you to support those coping mechanisms. It's also previous experience that you can build upon. And we've said that it's not just the absence of illness, either physical or mental, it's it's moving beyond that to being um, doing better than average, not just managing the baseline. So I'd like to uh, ask one final question to everyone
5: here, which is, uh, what is
8: resilience not? Um, um, Yeah, I guess in terms of what resilience is not, uh, I think it's, uh, one of the things it isn't, is not experiencing challenge or adversity. And um, I think often confused by people is, if you're resilient, um, you, you never experience overwhelm, you never experience anxiety, you never experience stress and it's it's not that um i think to be resilient you still experience those things um you just deal with them in a in a different way um and i, I guess also uh, kind of drawing back to to one of the things that we said earlier the importance of um society of collaboration um is that it resilience isn't kind of going it alone um to, to be resilient doesn't mean that you've just got to handle these things on your own and um, again kind of I think to perpetuate um, anything other than that is quite a risky thing because people take that on chip with their mental health thinking well I've got to be resilient I've got to just keep this to myself and, and I don't believe that.
0: Fantastic. That, that thanks, Alan. I, I 100% agree that it's not uh, not experiencing negative emotions, as some people have have started to bring into this field. It's experiencing them, being able to, to move past them, or or move on from there.
6: Um, it's not an elephant. It's not diabetes. It's not. I mean, there's a lot of things it's not. To me, what it what it is is it's overcoming adversity. Um, it's uh, well, you know and, and like we were saying is like what what that means in terms of success is a different story but <clears throat> I think it could it can apply at different developmental moments it can de- apply at different um, exposures of risk. I think what it is is it's a response to some kind of risk or some kind of adversity um, and, and it isn't, uh, you know, necessarily mental illness. I mean, I, I find it a difficult question to say what it isn't because I, I don't think it is everything. I don't think anybody who's written about, um, <clears throat> excuse me, resilience thinks it's it's everything. It's, it's this idea of exposed to adversity, different kinds, whatever it is. I think that's the part we're trying to understand is it's sort of not it's being able to bounce back or, or to overcome or to somehow not be completely debilitated by those adversities that you're experiencing. And I would sort of frame it that way. And that's not everything. I mean, that's not, you know, there's a whole field of, you know, uh, neuroscience that it may not, it's not related to, it's not related to all sorts of other aspects of, of life. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, but it, yeah, I'm for sure it's not an elephant.
1: I don't know, Mark. I think we could debate the elephant thing, but maybe maybe for another, another podcast. Um, we, we've done a little writing on resilience, um, and we, we had a section in our book called Cautions About Resilience, and one we call Troublesome Theorizing, and it really gets to what a lot of folks have said today. We, we use a lot of different terms and phrases to describe resilience, and we're really not sure how much overlap there is between the phrases and terms and how much distance there really is. So, we talk about troublesome theorizing, trying to figure this out. We also talk about the cost of resilience that, you know, there's uh, some, some folks we could say are resilient. They wrestle well, they deal with all kinds of adversity, and they pay an enormous personal cost at the same time that they're trying to wrestle well with, with, with resilience. Uh, maybe the example is people uh, staying in, a, in, a, in, a, in an abusive relationship you know, they, um, that would be sort of enormous cost of resilience, if you will, or, or efforts to wrestle well with that, that adversity. Um, and, and so, you know, in terms of what, what resilience is, is not, maybe those are, are, maybe that's one example. In fact, there are costs. The other thing I'll mention, and, and uh, Mark, you mentioned this briefly, uh, there's more research on what's going on under the skin, right? And so there's some research on adolescent males uh, who are doing well in school and by all observable indicators are really resilient. Uh, when they were, they were looking at such things as allostatic load and other under the skin indicators, a very different story was told. Uh, under the skin you know, indicators was telling uh, adolescent males not doing so well in terms of what was going on with their bodies, uh, with you know, um, with hormones, with other kinds of processes at the same time that the observables say they're being really resilient.
0: Thank you, Mike. Could you just briefly describe allostatic load for us, please?
1: Yes, I don't do this kind of work, but, but, but my colleagues, you know, look, look at you know, sort of draw blood uh, look at, in fact, what what is the composition of chemicals that are released in in the body based on uh, people's environmental experience? And one of those things is allostatic load. I wish I could explain it, you know, uh, better, but uh, it's for the smarter people, quite honestly. Yeah. Well,
6: I, I would just add not that I'm a smarter person. I would just add that it, it's sort of the body's response to. Um, stressors is its experience, whether that's pro, uh, poverty, racism, um, PTSD, battles, you know also all sorts of you know exposure to violence kind of thing. It's sort of the, this, the physiological response to that
1: right and that and that's the interesting piece in, in terms of these these male adolescents they're doing well you know they're getting high grades in school, they're part of social groups and and all, and all of that. But when you look at, what's going on with the body's response to whatever is in their lives, environmentally, it's, it's a very different story, yeah.
0: So it's about sort of levels of stress and what levels are, are helpful to people and at what point it gets pushed too far and you're, you've got too much stress and start to break down.
7: Yeah, picking up on that point about um, that resilience carries a cost, Um, I mean, personally, I I work in both quantitative and qualitative ways. So I'm interested in the things that you can measure very, very straightforwardly and the things that um, you need words and images to put um, understanding to. Uh, So I would keep the question of what resilience is very open and negotiable, although I like to have a definition. Um, but one thing I definitely don't think is I don't think, when we want to know what resilience is and isn't, we're kind of asking this because we'd like to f- promote that, right? We'd, we'd like to support people in being resilient. Um, so I don't think that resilience is the ability. It, I don't think it should be. I don't think we should ask people to be resilient if that means putting up with things that nobody should have to put up with. Frankly, and we might be looking at things that are really big and intractable, or they might be things that are really like easy to kind of manage, um, whatever the risk and challenges are. But when you look at things like socioeconomic inequality, when you look at racism, if you're looking at abusive um, situations, um, nobody should have to be putting up with those things. And so resilience should not be the ability to put up with continual insults to yourself in that way. And when we're thinking about what resilience is, I don't think that's what we're ultimately aiming for. And I think that's a really important distinguish, uh, point to make and distinguish um, because I think if you're on the other side of that, it can maybe feel like, i'm being asked to be resilient in the face of this thing that is unfair to me and i would imagine that nobody wants to perpetuate that but um if we never speak to the the need to change that that can be one of the outcomes i think
0: yeah and i think uh joe and sue went into that a little bit in our last podcast when they said um that resilience in some ways is is pragmatism. I mean, ideally, what we'd like is for people not to have to experience this stress. But since it does happen, it's it's helpful to look at how to help people get past it.
1: I was just going to add to Rebecca's point. Michael Unger, who is uh, oh, I've just dropped where he is in Canada. But nevertheless, Michael Unger has written a great deal, Rebecca, about your point to sort of, you know, it's not it's not just an individual issue to do well in life. That there's all these other things going on that need to change um, in in the culture of the society the uh the community because it's too easy to kind of lay on wrestling well to the individual without regard to what what it is they're wrestling with and i think that's to rebecca's point thank
0: you and uh thank you to everyone for being here and thank you to our, our listeners as well and um, that's all we have time for today But do join us at our next podcast where we'll be talking about uh, COVID and individual level resilience as well. So once again, thank you very much to all our speakers for being here and thank you to everyone for listening. The Resilience Research Group is a global group of researchers, practitioners, charities and organisations dedicated to developing high quality, collaborative resilience research. Our aims are to improve access to understanding of and quality of resilience research and to support and aid our members in effectively developing and disseminating their research. To find out more or to get involved, contact us on Twitter or LinkedIn.